Vogue's frontman Shane McGowan has died at the age of 65. He'd been ill for some time. His wife Victoria confirmed the news on social media, saying there was no way to describe the loss that she was feeling. And coming about, what, three weeks before his 66th birthday, of course, he was born on Christmas Day in 1957. It is a sobering shock, I suppose. And along, like, so soon after the passing of Sinead O'Connor and Christy Dignam, I suppose we've lost some kind of unholy or holy trinity of Irish music over the past couple of months. It does come as a shock, even though we've been expecting it. Shane used to say, I was given six weeks to live about 25 years ago. He always was very mischievous about his own longevity and his own health. So still shocking and, and very kind of sad. Your songs broadened our sense of ourselves. Redemption, sorrow, the ordinary person's story. You were pretty queen of New York. Are you content with what you've achieved? No, I wanted to more. Welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and this podcast is coming to you on the day of the passing of the great Shane McGowan, singer, songwriter, poet, carouser, rabble rouser, all things to all men and women and a particular hero, a particular icon of the kind of people that listen to this podcast. Uh, I've done these kinds of podcasts before on the passing of Christy Dignam a little bit earlier on in the year and most recently when Sinead O'Connor passed away uh, we did Twitter spaces and I don't know if what podcasts put out but I usually feel the need just to mark the passing of such iconic cultural figures just by sharing a few memories of them and what they meant to me and what they mean to the global Irish community and what I've witnessed in that around the world. And ironically, I'm coming to you now uh, from my home in Stockholm on a snowy winter's night on the 30th of November. Shane passed away at about half past three this morning, Irish time. And he'd been ill for quite a long time. But Shane was actually one of the last people I saw before I left Dublin in 1999 to come to Sweden. Uh, The night before I left, we had been out in a pub in the city centre. And Shane and his friends were in that particular pub, but, you know, I was involved in music and that kind of thing, but it wasn't the kind of thing where you went up and just started sort of talking to people and that, and of course Shane was notoriously incoherent a lot of the time, you know, and it was kind of difficult to under, understand what he was saying if you were in a noisy pub and that, but it was great to be in the same place as this great singer, this uh, this great figure in Irish music and I thought Jesus you know as much as I love a song like Thousands Are Sailing and here I am set to emigrate tomorrow and I'm in the pub uh, with the man who played on that record and sang it and I think Phil Chevron of course was very involved in the writing of it but as with many things Shane got the credit for this brilliant brilliant tune and that was grand it got about one o'clock in the morning and uh, I had to head off obviously because I was heading to Sweden the next day but before I did that this is back in the day when the internet was in its infancy and the euro didn't even exist and not that Sweden is in the euro anyway so I had made an appointment uh, to go into the city centre of Dublin very early in the morning and to pick up some Swedish crowns the local currency here in Sweden you know to convert what little few bob I had and by Jesus it wasn't very much at all uh, into Swedish crowns so I booked them because you, you know it wasn't the kind of um, currency that you could just pick up in any high street bank at that point in time there was no forex offices or that kind of thing knocking around the place 
But I'd booked to go and collect some of my Swedish crowns in Dame Street that morning before going back out and getting on the plane and coming to Sweden where I've been for the last 24 years. And I happened to be going by the same pub and the door opened and out walked Shane McGowan. So I had left there about seven or eight hours previously and Shane had still been in there uh, with a couple of people. Now he left on his own, but obviously uh, you know there must have been a bartender or a manager or somewhere in there. I'm not going to name the pub, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, you never know. Shane may have passed on, but there might be people still around the place who could be done for having a lock-in that kind of thing. So it wouldn't be fair to name who they were, but. It was kind of amazing because it fit into that whole sort of that whole image of Shane as this hard drinking rock and roll type, uh, and it was, you know, this was many years after he was finished playing with the Pogues, but still he was living up to almost that image of himself and being out and drinking that kind of thing. And you know, we just sort of said, "How are you to one another?" And he went off to wherever he was going, and I went off to Sweden, where I have lived ever since. But uh, my first acquaintance with Shane goes back before that because it came to be through his music and I remember reading uh, as we did back in the, the 1980s you didn't get your information from the internet and you got very little from television occasionally from the radio from the likes of Dave Fanning or that but often it was the British music press who would tell you what it was what was going on for Irish bands in England and of course you 2 had been hugely successful by that point but in the early 1980s you were still coming out of the tail end of punk and it was culturally it was a bad enough time to be Irish in the UK. Not that it was ever a good time to be Irish in the UK, but it was a very, very fraught time because the IRA was deciding to take its bombing campaign to the mainland, uh, as they called it. They were blowing up things in London, you know, we were not too long, only a few years maybe after the Birmingham and Guildford pub bombings, uh, the Birmingham Six were still in prison. And all of a sudden, in newspapers like the New Musical Express and in Melody Maker and indeed in pop magazines like Smash Hits, they started to write about and talk about this band called the Pogues. And they were fronted by this skinny fella called Shane McGowan. And the first couple of things that they did, the EPs that they were doing, uh, were sort of, you know, it was like punk rock folk music tied together, you know? Now, this wasn't in itself new. A lot of people would argue that it was very, very new, but you have to remember that the Dubliners back in the 60s were kind of like what punk rock was for Ireland because these were hard-drinking men, tough men, who went out there and really lashed into the ballads that, you know, the ballad tradition in Ireland would have been a more sort of a folky thing. You would have had, you know, Christy Moore doing his thing and Paul Brady doing his thing. But the Dubliners were like, you know, the Irish version of the Rolling Stones. These lads got up there and they didn't care what people thought of them. And they wore their politics in their sleeve. And uh, they wore their opinion of England and the English and the British and British governments on their sleeve as well. Didn't go down too well in many parts of England, but that's who they were. So when the Pogues came along, it was like that on amphetamines. And they, it was just wild, like, you know, to hear the drumming and the bass and the melody instruments, and there was fiddles thrown in there, there was accordions thrown in there, and banjos thrown in there, and anything else. But what was unusual, and what was very, very different uh, in what the Pogues were doing, was the songs that they wrote themselves. So when they got to writing their own music, and recording their own music, and putting it out on stiff records, these were songs that Shane had written, and that reflected very much the experience of Irish people in England at that time. Songs like Thousands Are Sailing would come later, which uh, more or less examined 
more so from an American perspective or the Irish American perspective uh, what it was like for us as Irish people abroad and the, the picture that Shane painted and this is what stood out to me as a teenager at the time was that it wasn't like Pride in the Name of Love which was the U2 song that was written about Martin Luther King and it was very triumphant and very loud and, and that kind of thing Shane wrote about drunks and he wrote about rent boys and he wrote about drunk tanks and uh, people who who are on the wrong side of the tracks people whose lives really weren't going the way that they expected them to go when they got on the boat in Dunleary or, or North Wall and went off to England to make their lives there and he was incredibly eloquent in telling those stories because even though these people uh, were on the wrong side of the tracks they weren't in some cases they were victims but they were never really sort of you know they were put upon but there was always a great sense of of defiance and a sense that you know that there was a possibility to fight back and to make something else of this and even in those few cases where there wasn't it was still uh, it was a very gritty image of the Irish in England and it kind of it forced us to question a lot of what we think about our Irish communities abroad. Do we really support people as well as we could and as well as we should? Do we really look after one another in the way that we tell ourselves that we do? And Shane questioned that and his answer in some cases was no, that we didn't do enough, that people did wind up under bridges uh, drinking strong wine and, and, and tonic wines and that kind of thing, or the really strong beers that you used to be able to get the cheese, you couldn't put up with the taste of them, you know. That happened. For every success story of a writer or of an artist or a musician, there was a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand more who lived a sort of a button-down life, going to a car factory in Dagenham or going up to see if they could find casual labour on the building sites. And he never shied away from telling those stories. And in doing that, he evoked the work that was done previously by the likes of Brendan Behan, uh, by uh, Dominic's, by Dominic Bain, Brendan's brother, who wrote many, many songs about the Irish in England, uh, including Paddy on the Road, you know, about building up and tearing England down and that. And Shane really seemed to have absorbed the works of the likes of Dominic Bain and of Brendan Bain and the Dubliners and all the songs that he would have heard around his house because his more, uh, of course his mother Therese she was uh, a very well capable folk singer and a dancer and she would have been very sort of, artistically minded in her day but at that point in the 80s just to be Irish at all it would seem was an act of rebellion which dovetailed very nicely with the punk scene that Shane sort of got involved in in the late 70s and the early 80s and the more he embraced that sense of Irishness and that sense of Irish in Englandness, the more successful he became. Because I was writing on Twitter a little bit earlier today about Shane and people like him being caught between two islands. And if you've listened to this podcast in the past, you will have heard the Irish author Kate Kerrigan, um, and she talked about her show Am I Irish Yet? Because she was born to an Irish family in England. And a lot like Shane, she would have been too Irish to be accepted in English in England and too English to be accepted when she came back home. Now Shane grew up until about the age of six, as far as I remember, in County Tipperary in Ireland and then moved back to England. So this was very, very prevalent in his life, this idea of, okay, who do I belong to? Who are my people? And he said some very, very strong things later in life. I think he said something along the lines of, you know, that he was ashamed of himself, that he didn't have the guts to join the IRA. And that the Pogues was his way of, you know, it was almost like, you know, the armed musical struggle, if you will, because that way he could lift things like the plight of the Birmingham Six 
and the people around them and the fact that they were unjustly imprisoned in England and that and he was able to do all those things and contribute to that debate and to the enlivening of Irish history by being part of that and by telling those stories uh, which he did in such a tremendous fashion so when they actually sort of got underway uh, you know like there, there were so many people who were so influential in it you had Cato Reardon who played the bass still playing at the moment James Fairley playing the accordion an absolutely brilliant musician uh, you had drummers in there you had bass players like like Cot. Uh, but when they kicked off and they sort of mixed up those uh, those sort of different forms, so songs that they wrote themselves, and then songs that they would have had from years back, you know. And that first album, Red Roses, for me was a sort of a like, okay, this is this is where this is gonna go. Like, you know, it was just an amazing thing to hear because it was sort of so so fast and so punkish and that kind of thing. Now that was that made the break it kind of got got through you know a little bit of a breakthrough and that was when they started to appear in the the, the music press but it was really when they recorded rum sodomy in the lash in 1985 and philip chevron had joined the band that uh, they they just broke through completely and at that stage even more so than their recorded work which was full of that punk rock energy the live shows were just incredible and anybody who was Irish who lived in London in that time will tell you about those shows they're almost mythical at it's, it's, it, this stage it's like the Slaying Castle concerts or, or you know what Woodstock would have been to, to American hippies at the time but again they went back you know you had songs of their own like the Sick Bell of Cuchulain which is one which is fantastic storytelling the Old Main Drag which is another one and then you also had folk songs like Dirty Old Town and one of my personal favourites which is not even an Irish song at all uh, and the band played Waltzing Matilda which is about the Anzac tr- uh, troops who went and fought in World War One. a song written by a man named er- uh, by Ernest Bogle uh, sorry Eric Bogle was the songwriter's name and when they did songs like that because they were songs that we would have heard Liam Clancy sing and we would have heard him sing it in a very different way when the Poes approached these things they were brilliant musicians never let anybody tell you that they weren't brilliant musicians because they were and terry woods and phil Chevron, who joined the band latterly were two of the best musicians i've ever seen do anything but they had this incredibly loose way of playing right so they could be absolutely on the money and yet it sounded like everything could collapse at any given second and that was the joy of it and watching Shane perform those songs and sometimes things did collapse and he'd forget the words or he wouldn't sing when he was supposed to sing or he'd sing the wrong verse or whatever and a lot of people might object to that if you're paying tickets and that, paying for tickets and that kind of thing but nah like that was part of the charm of these things you know would the band even show up at all when that was all sort of you know getting big it all went absolutely nuts from there and uh, things started to turn mainstream so they were getting into the charts and they did uh, a version of the Irish Rover with the Dubliners uh, and that was just you know sort of went straight in they were back in, in the charts and, and it just became such a huge thing around them but then with the addition of Phil Chevron who's a brilliant guitar player and Terry Woods who could play absolutely anything who could play any instrument he picked up he was absolutely brilliant at but when they went to make the record uh, If I Could Fall From Grace With God it kind of became a little bit more polished and I reckon I've heard Shane say in the past that that was where it started to become difficult because polished was not what he was and it wasn't what he wanted but he found himself in a band and that that had to be there had to be some sort of sense of democracy about the whole thing and trying to do things that would be uh, acceptable to everybody else as well and that the other members of the band would be allowed to express themselves and they would be able to to uh, to explore their musicality as w- 
but in the same way that Shane was was exploring his own musicality and his own songwriting and if you go down through it um, because I was just looking there at, the, at the, who actually wrote the songs you had he wrote If I Should Fall From Grace With God uh, Turkish Song of the Damned together with Jem Finer Bottle of Smoke and Fairy Tale in New York of course which became the massive massive hit that's back in our radio now for the next month and will be now and forevermore. Uh, Thousands of Our Sailing of course was written by Phil Chevron and when you listen to it you can tell it was written by by somebody who was such a a brilliant musician Uh, but it's it's Shane's delivery in that song and the second verse of that song uh, when Shane starts to sing that you know you've gone through the chorus and everything else like that it comes back down and there's sort of bazookies and mandolins going on and that's when the iconic lines come in in Manhattan's desert twilight in the death of afternoon we walked hand in hand down Broadway like the first men on the moon and the blackbird broke the silence as you whistled it so sweet and in Brendan Behan's footsteps I danced up and down the street Many years later, I was in New York, and there's only one thing that you can do if you're Irish, and you love Irish music, and you love the Pogues, and you love Shane McGowan like I do, is you got to do that, and you got to walk down Broadway. If you can find somebody to walk hand in hand with, please do, but if you don't, just do it by yourself. And I remember the tears in my eyes as I took that walk on an afternoon down towards Battery Park from Broadway as just being... You know the way sometimes, it'd be like if you were dropped into a Star Wars movie or or a, a Martin Scorsese movie, like right as it was happening, because you could just see what it was that Chevron saw and you could see what it was that Shane McGowan saw when they were singing this song and they were committing this song to vinyl and cassette and CD. Uh, and it was just an amazing, amazing experience to have done it at all and I suggest that you know even if you've never gotten near New York that maybe tonight you go and you put that song in your headphones and close your eyes and let that band and that song take you there Uh, also on that album was the song that Shane wrote together with Teddy Woods Uh, it's a song called Streets of Sorrow but better known as Streets of Sorrow Birmingham 6 or just the Birmingham 6 and that was a huge thing for Irish people in England because it was extremely difficult around the times of the Guildford bombings and the Birmingham pub bombings it was extremely difficult just to be Irish at all to have a name to have an accent to go to a certain school or to work for a certain uh, property developer or builder that was in town there or to go and drink in certain pubs or to play Gaelic games or speak Irish or or play Irish music at all those things were synonymous with the people who had blown up the pubs and what happened in that situation was that Irish people basically lost all their rights. Uh, the law was applied with full force. The Birmingham Six were framed. The Guildford Four were framed. Uh, many people spent... The Maguire Seven were framed. Many people spent many, many years behind bars because that's what you could do to Irish people in the climate of Britain at that time. And for somebody like Shane and for a band like the Pogues to come out and to back the Birmingham Six and to back the Guildford Four and to write this song about how these people had been fitted up. Again, I think sometimes it's hard for younger generations to understand just how difficult it was for Irish people in England at that time and the, the shadow of the IRA and the fact that we were all responsible for the IRA, whether we liked it or not, we were all given responsibility for what it was that the IRA was doing in London and in England. You could stand there and say, not in my name, not in my name, didn't matter to an English police officer didn't matter to an English publican or an English taxi driver we were all as guilty as each other that album also contained the iconic fairy tale New York and 
It's amazing when you hear the stories of these songs and how they were looking for somebody to sing it. And Steve Lillywhite, uh, who is a brilliant, brilliant record producer, has produced many great albums over the years, oftentimes with Irish artists, and how he got his wife, Kirsty McCall, in to sing it. And when the single came out the first time around, it famously has never been to number one, and I would expect that to change in about 15 minutes' time as Christmas starts to approach. But when it came out, I don't think I've ever heard a more perfect pop single for this time of the year. It has absolutely everything. The piano intro just brings you in, and then all of a sudden you have that swing, which I believe was Terry Woods is doing, because Terry, as I mentioned earlier, is such a brilliant musician, that himself and Jam, they really got that swing into it. I absolutely love the drumming on that record, because it's kind of a very old-fashioned Gene Krupka, Nelson Riddle kind of drumming. Now, that's one for the music nerds, right? These were guys who would have played with the old-fashioned big bands. And I remember listening to it, especially the outro at the end, and, you know, he's doing different sorts of roles and fills, and I found it fascinating about the, the brilliance of the whole thing, and the, the looseness of the previous Pogues record was completely gone. This was a brilliantly, brilliantly played record, nothing was left to chance of that. The vocal performances from Shane and from Kirsty were absolutely amazing, and the moment you heard it, you knew that this is a song that I am going to be listened to forevermore. And that was exactly how it turned out. And we're still listening to it to this day. Kirsty, of course, was killed. Uh, she was struck by a speedboat in, uh, I think it was off the coast. It was in Mexico, somewhere in Mexico or North America, uh, there, somewhere around there. Uh, and she was uh, fatally injured in that. And it was just such a great loss. And as we heard in the intro there, we've also lost Christy Dignam and we've lost Sinead O'Connor this year as well. Uh, what happened after that was a gradual falling apart uh, of the band. Things weren't really working out. Um, they released an album called Peace and Love, uh, you know, which is, it was a fine record. You know, it was uh, There was a lot of good tunes on there. There was a, a great cover to it and that. You had uh, songs like White City, uh, Misty Morning, Albert Bridge, which is an absolutely br- brilliant song altogether. Uh, Lorelei, a Phil Chevron tune that is a favourite of many, many great songwriters that I've spoken to. They absolutely love that particular tune and it's one of their one of their favourites and when it was reissued in I think it was 2005 there was actually a whole bunch of other stuff that was um that was released with it right one was a version of honky tonk women by the rolling stones but also they had a version of the star the county down so even though they'd gone off in this more sort of complex slightly sort of jazzy weird sort of you know they'd done stuff with turkish rhythms and all this kind of thing they were still there they were still firmly firmly rooted in that irish ballad tradition that irish traditional music that sense of irish traditional music uh, then it all started to go to the dogs because what we haven't mentioned apart from the fact of shane staggering out of that pub or out of that pub so early in the morning was the fact that he became this almost stereotypical Irish bohemian who would be wandering around London and who drank a lot and who took drugs and to all, do, who did all of these things and didn't really care what anybody thought, didn't really care to turn up on time for any of these things. And really, for me, that was where his artistic greatness didn't end there because you know he wrote songs after that and you know he released a book of of art and that kind of thing later on in life 
But to me, I was never a big fan of the Popes, which was this band that he put together after the Pogues. Uh, it never really struck a chord with me. I think it was because of the fact that the DNA of the Pogues was so firmly rooted in what I was to become, which is a member of the Irish Abroad, which is why this Global Gale podcast exists. I think that appealed to me. I knew so many people from my own family who lived in America. I knew so many people uh, who were a year ahead of me in school who were moving to London or planning on moving to London or to Birmingham or to Scotland or to Germany at that point. Uh, Australia wasn't even on the map. It was too far away. But this was the fate that awaited many of us. And what we didn't know at that point was that we already had the soundtrack to it because Shane McGowan had written it because he had gotten there before all of us. Um, his health hasn't been great in recent years. He's been using a wheelchair since 2015. He had a couple of falls uh, that injured his pelvis fairly seriously. And I think his knees were a bit dodgy as well. And he's had various different health complaints. His teeth were never good. And that often leads to a situation where other things suffer as well. And he had to have a lot of work done. The book of art that I mentioned, I think it sold for a thousand euros or a thousand pounds a copy. And that money was supposedly to go to his treatment for the various different uh, ailments that he had. Uh, he was released from hospital a week ago uh, after suffering from encephalitis. Now, encephalitis, as far as I knew, was something to do with the brain, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be sort of web MD, the web doctor who can explain to you exactly what it was that took his life away. But he has been ill for a very long time. There's a famous photograph going around. I think it might be from the summer when Bruce Springsteen, the great American uh, folk and rock singer, went to visit him, and you kind of got the feeling when you saw that photograph or I certainly did anyway that that was a pilgrimage by Springsteen and it might be the last time that he would have the opportunity to go and to let Shane hold court and to talk to one of the greatest Irish songwriters and one of the greatest Irish poets and one of the greatest Irish troubadours of all time and that was how it turned out to be. Today is, as I mentioned, the 30th of November 2023. We have lost the great Shane McGowan. No more will he stand on the stage with the Pogues. No more will he sing those songs. But he has left us a tremendous treasure chest of melodies and of music and of interviews. And there are documentary films out there. And I would strongly suggest that if you've never gotten into this band before or this man before, if you're listening just because you happen to listen to the podcast normally, do it now. Go find the Spotify playlist. Go find the documentaries. Go find the interviews with him. The tribute to him on the Late Late Show. The tribute show that was held to him in, I think it was in a Dublin theatre a few years back where other musicians, Irish musicians in particular, gathered to pay tribute to him. Because this is a time that we have to mark his greatness. We have to mark his passing and we have to thank him and his wife Victoria and his family and the people in the band, some of whom have predeceased him for the great work that they did and how they held up a mirror to us, in particular those of us who are Irish people abroad, those people who grew up in London and in Boston and in Chicago and who are growing up now in Sydney and in Melbourne and in Abu Dhabi, all over the world where the Irish have made their homes. Because if there's one thing that keeps us together, it's community. And community is often driven by art. These are our history books. These songs are our history books. The tales he told are the things that we will pass on forevermore. And as long as we have these things to gather around, that community will remain strong wherever it is in the world. Rest in peace, Shane, and thanks for everything.